it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to Cryer Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation, our weekly sit-down with the people shaping the beer industry, and through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. The Australian brewing landscape is rapidly evolving, and here we try and make sense of what is happening and better understand the issues shaping the industry. And this week, we have an episode that underscores why this podcast is called Beer is a Conversation rather than Beer is an Interview, as we meet new Independent Brewers Association General Manager, Kylie Lethbridge. Kylie has only recently stepped into her new role with the IBA, starting just as the hospitality shutdowns commenced, and so I had been anticipating a conversation about her experience through that challenge. Instead, I was surprised to learn early in the conversation that in addition to her background in government policy and regional tourism, Kylie has also been hands-on as a part owner in a regional pub, and our unexpected detour into discussing the background to that revealed some fascinating insights into the beer market that could benefit craft brewers expanding into new markets outside of the metropolitan craft beer bubble. Of course, we do also talk about the challenges of starting a new job with an industry organisation at a time of crisis for that industry, and also what she sees are the key issues facing the association post-COVID-19. It's a great chat, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Kylie Lethbridge, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Well, this would have been an interesting chat at the best of times, but of course, it's not the best of times that you've stepped into the uh, uh, general manager's role of the the, the IBA. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. But before we do, maybe you can, uh, what one of our standard questions is, tell us a little bit of uh, the the Kylie Lethbridge story. Yeah, well, the, the, the short version of that, um, Matt is that I, in, in terms of my career, I've I've had a kind of a, a varied career since I started. I started working in um, ministerial offices because I thought I wanted to be involved in politics. Um, after you know two or three years doing that, I realised I absolutely didn't want to be involved in politics from that perspective. <laughs> um, and so I went off to, um, I worked in, in uh, conservation area for a little while, conservation and environment, um, and then headed off to Tourism Victoria, which is kind of really where I found my passion for what I wanted to do. So I'd been working in various roles, predominantly marketing um, and international uh, relations and trade. I worked in um trying to attract cruise ships to Melbourne on behalf of Australia and New Zealand for four or five years, uh, which is ironic now given our cruise ship <laughs> issue and the fact Always that we really hate them. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was all we wanted back then. Now we're, we're I think, not so sure about those um, big floating hotels. But um, And then uh, I went and worked overseas. I, I had a, um, I fell in love with Scotland when I went to visit uh, the first time and so I went back to work there for Visit Scotland, their national tourism body, which was 
an amazing experience and living you know living in one of the coldest parts of the world uh although it um although it was freezing it was it was an amazing experience so that was that was a really kind of again solidified what I wanted to do and um came back then to work for local council in the tourism and economic development space so I spent a lot of time really helping small businesses do things like get through planning and fundamentally my role was to increase visitation to the region which which we did by about a million visitors in a couple of years and then I went to work for a different council and um and last year I had one of those moments in time where you go do I really want to be doing this? Um, and, and, and at this point, um, you know, I, I, I took some time off. I left that job and, and had a few months off to ponder that next step and what, what the, I guess, the thing that would be the most meaningful to me and where I felt I could make the most contribution. And just as I was starting to get ready to go for the job search, um, I had a lovely holiday in Spain and uh, and saw the IBA ad and was was really um, you know when you sometimes you just you see things at some point in time you go mm, yeah I think that's mine <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so applied for that and came back cut my trip short from Spain early to come back for the interview so that's um, that's sort of the short story about how I got to the IBA. So, what was it about the IBA, uh, you know, the working for the Independent Brewers Association that um, resonated with you from based on that experience? It was predominantly, well, I guess in, in this kind of podcast, I can I can absolutely say this, but it was predominantly my love of beer <laughs> and you know a, a long term relationship with um, <laughs> with the product, essentially. This but, is one podcast um, where you almost can't you know, can't not say not. that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So um, I'd, I'd part owned a pub some time ago, a, a country pub, and so had had an idea. You didn't put well, that I in your LinkedIn had... profile. Yes. Well, I, <laughs> I, I, you know what, Matt, to be very honest, I haven't finished that LinkedIn profile. I've got so many board appointments to put on there, and it, you know, it always seems to be on the bottom of the list. But yeah, so I, I, I thought I had an idea of of how the how the industry worked, but you know, in being on board now for a couple of months, I really didn't, um, I, you know, it only touched the surface. But it was it was fundamentally um, a desire to to work somewhere where I could, where I could see the difference I was making, and um, that meant for me smaller teams, smaller organisation. One where I had autonomy to be able to, I guess, have an idea and then be able to, to take that through to fruition. Uh, working for a council is very challenging in that you have 40,000 residents who, who think that they can yell at you in the supermarket if they don't like <laughs> what you're doing. Um, you have politicians, local politicians who, you know, quite often very inexperienced and directed by one or two people so you can work on something for five years, blood, sweat and tears, which is what generally I put into everything, um, and they can really just throw that out on a whim. Um, so it was it was that level of frustration that made me go, okay, I need to work somewhere where I can absolutely have an influence and see that change and make some of those decisions immediately. So that you know, went to kind of executive careers counsellors and things like that. And they all actually said, you, you, you probably need to work for sort of a membership organisation or, or something like that. So um, it was just, 
I, I truly believe it was just fate that this job came up at the same time as I was having those conversations. And the intrinsic link with, with the love of the product meant that this was the dream job. I think that's exactly what I said to my pals and, and uh, my family is, I've got the dream job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a dream job until you realise that drinking beer is part of the job and it's, it's very hard to not have you know to, to have the off nights um not so much as a it it's as i end up saying to a lot of people uh, when you work in beer it is a job even though it might be your dream job yeah it it is um but i think if you can if you can have if you can do something during the day and if you are a person that throws your heart and soul into everything and you can you can do something during the day that is around or about something that you love it makes it much easier so what was it that uh, led you to buy a share in a in, in a pub? And are you happy to, to name the pub? <laughs> um, it, it was in a little country town near Dalesford in the Macedon Ranges. And it was, it was sort of really a family investment. And um, it came up as a result of really our kind of accountant slash financial advisor saying, um, I've heard of this being sold for a, for a, um, fire sale essentially although it wasn't a fire um, and I had worked in tourism I, uh, and I was working in tourism in that region so I knew that the that part of the world was growing in terms of its offering from a food and wine perspective um, and the, the old gastro pub was um, it was around 2007 eight. And so I could see, you know, what, what that area was becoming. And because I had experienced so much of that kind of food and wine product or experience in the region, I thought that I had a good idea of what I could turn the pub into. Um, and so, yeah, um, kind of jumped on board and, and set about doing that. And how involved were you in the, in the day-to-day running? Were you actually pulling beers or was it, it was more of a, a management approach? It was, I was working full time as well. Um, and so uh, it was the, the decision making, the rebranding, um, that was more mine. So my side was, was marketing and promotion and changing what was uh, the nature of the pub into something that um, was, was slightly different to attract a different market while at the same time meeting that need for, for locals and, and a meeting place for the um, so, you know, people that have lived in the region for a long time. So it was that uh, gradual transformation of, of, of the pub was sort of mine. Um, but uh, Friday, Saturday nights um, was behind the bar pulling beers because I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it there was, I probably, you know, you do need to work there in the pub to understand the people and the place. Um, but I, I feel very comfortable either side of a bar, to be very frank. Um, so... <laughs> It was it was pulling beers that was um, was what I was absolutely happy to do on a Friday and Saturday night. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but tell us about the the tap list at the at the pub. Well, when when we got there, um, it was very much what you would expect as as your old um, old regulars, uh, the, the the biggies. There was no craft beer on tap. It was a very small pub and a town that wasn't still at that point um, particularly being able to uh, support a, a, a essentially a more expensive range of product and, and it was what they were demanding. So I um, gradually we introduced uh, 
more craft beer or independent beer via our fridges. We expanded the fridge um, uh, component or infrastructure to be able to offer beer. But as I mentioned earlier, it was really um, you needed to, to, I guess, dance with that gradual transformation of the pub. So until we got a different kind of clientele um, who might demand uh, more independent beer or a different range of beer, certainly, it was really still keeping up with the locals and, and what, what they were after. Um, so eventually the, the rebrand of the pub meant that, um, and literally complete look and feel change, um, food offering change, the whole kind of kit and caboodle. It wasn't until then that um, that really we, we were able to introduce a different range of product and have that sell. And that's an interesting insight because sometimes when we live in the craft beer bubble um, or we, we live in the beer bubble and have an affinity mm. for the, the craft end of that uh, product, sometimes we can't understand why it isn't everywhere. Um, but mm. w- working in a country pub, I guess you would have a particular insight into how you have to grow the category. It's very gradual. As, as I mentioned, you, you um, and, and because the pub had never done any promotion. It was a pub that would grab a frozen pre-packed, um, God knows what was in the chicken parma, <laughs> throw it throw it in, in a deep fryer fr- from frozen. Um, you know, it was, it was that kind of pub. And so that gradual change, as well as trying to make a buck, you know, was essential for us in um, in not making too much change immediately. But because there'd been none of the, you know, none of the integration with the broader tourism community, and this, you know, this pub was in the main street of the town that was was growing. It had a a bakery that was, you know, becoming quite famous. It had a chef's hat restaurant. Um, and so it, that exponential growth, it was really important for us to pave the way alongside that. So until we started to tell tourists that, you know, they were welcome there and it didn't, you know, it wasn't a scary pub. Um, it wasn't, there wasn't a, a smart business decision to try and introduce any new products at that point in time. So it really was gradual of, um, you know, change the look and feel, change the menus, so then we might be able to get a few extra or different kind of people in the pub. And, um, and then as that happens and that market spend a bit of money on marketing work with the local tourism association all those other few all those other things that that will kind of you know get you to a different clientele that we were then able to say okay let's put and and we were we were lucky in um in Dalton Macedon Rangers that we had a we had a a brewery that was uh, independent and local so obviously we started with them and uh and then grew from there that's a really interesting, again, a really interesting observation because you, you see a lot of publicans that put a couple of taps of craft beer on at the back of the venue, but then the outside of the, the, the venue screams something completely different, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, cheap um, Carlton dry pots or something like that, and then wonder why people don't come in and buy the craft beer. But, you know, signalling is very important when you're operating a venue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the... Um you know, very quickly there, there was a there was you know uh, the the local people um, you know as I said small country town um, funny really because uh, uh, you know the 
large kind of Irish families, potato farming area. Uh, everyone knows everyone. Um, and and so it looked at, at the beginning like it could be a bit rough, which is why you know, it's very difficult to attract that market without changing the, the look of the pub. And, and, you know, you know as well as me what, what people are demanding from, from their food experiences in this day and age. And even back then it was, you know, we want something exceptional. We've travelled for for you know either a, a tourism experience or we're staying with pals locally or whatever it might be. You need to to give a range of food that means that they might come walk into your pub or stay there or or have a couple of extra drinks. So, it, you know, it was it was really gradual over about a three year period. Were there any comments from the locals about why we got this hipster beer on, or yeah, you know, the, the the sort of stereotypical comments that uh, you, you sometimes get when you start to uh, transform that sort of offering? <laughs> yeah, well, one of, you know, a good indication of of where we were at when we started was one of the biggest, um, you know, aside from aside from beer. Uh, one of the biggest selling um, products in the pub was cans of of uh, Jim Beam and Coke. Um, <laughs> uh, so there was a natural progression through the evening from one to the other. Um, so yeah, there was definitely comments. However, by that point in time, we had well and truly ingrained ourselves into that community, and um, you know there was lots of oh, who are these people? There, you know, we lived in the region as well, which helped um, us not be perceived as the out of towners coming to change us. Um, uh, we, you know, we had the family had property at that time, well, some acreage, so we 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 were able to ingratiate ourselves with those with the locals to the point that we absolutely adored them and they absolutely adored us. And so the change that that came was then readily accepted. In in fact, a lot of the a lot of our gorgeous regulars that you know these are people that would be working locally, volunteering at you know CFA and all that kind of stuff. Very very community minded people um, all helped us paint the pub one day. You know, free of charge because they could see what what we were trying to do and they were really happy that um, that they were still welcome and and catered for, but that there was you know somebody was fixing up their pub. There's so many themes that we can probably pick up when we start talking about craft breweries, about being part of community. Um, but before we start talking about the, the IBA, um, and, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I couldn't not ask, did your venue have um, tap contracts? No. Oh. Yeah, no, it it was it was really, I think, hand to mouth before we bought it. It was not in a good state financially. Um and and for many reasons um, that meant that it was day to day, week to week of wow, whatever okay. kegs were coming in. Yeah. So um, so yeah, we we ended up with tap contracts absolutely because we the rebrand um, the rebrand in terms of you know not just upgrading the facilities but the the total rebrand in terms of um, you know logos, beer mats, coasters and things like that triggered uh, a little more interest for some reason um, and and the you know the sales reps were certainly watching the growth of that region and looking at opportunities so we didn't have any you know as I said it was day to day week to week with Sometimes people lining up out the front waiting for the keg yep. um, that morning. Yeah, that that's something that changed 
over time as well because, um, you know, I, I had no idea about any issues associated with tap contracts and it seemed, again, a business, you know, a good business decision to make at the time because of the investment that they make in helping you rebrand and upgrade facilities. It, it was the thing to do, you know, in terms of a business decision. And, and what was the attraction to them you know, as, as the business became more viable? What, what did... Mm they offer the business um, you know, outside of your role with the IBA, which would may change your views. But as a, as, as a pub owner, what was mm. the attraction to you? Funding, Matt, basically. It was, um, you know, it was having, it was having and, and, and none of the contracts were huge, but it was, it was an ability to have that surety of money in the bank to be able to make some of the improvements that we needed that were absolutely essential and the funding of umbrellas, the funding of, you know, uh, on-street branding and infrastructure, chairs, tables, things like that. It was very attractive to us at the time. It's interesting because one of the things that independent craft brewers always say is that you're paying more for the beer to fund those tap contracts. So it's essentially almost mm. getting the, the, the money up front. And is, is that an argument that if I was an independent brewer coming into to your pub and saying, yeah, sure, look, you can get all of those you know, bar mats and uh, umbrellas and uh, you know, a, a check um, up, up front, but I can sell you beer so every one of your kegs will be $60 cheaper. Would that have resonated mm. with you at the time or was it an argument that probably, was it a, a sales pitch that still wouldn't have changed your view about the value of contracts? Hard to say, just because, you know, and I guess I'm, I'm not being risk adverse in answering this question, but it's hard to say because I, I had a different mindset at the time. Mm. You know, it was, it was 12 years ago, um, you know, 11, 12 years ago, and uh, my level of maturity, my ability to understand how to run a business, that's a steep learning curve. Um, when it comes to somebody that had worked for an organisation before rather than run their own business. And so naivety, I think, played a big part in that. And um, my absolute, um, uh, what's the right term, my absolute desire to do everything in five minutes that that other people might (laughs) want to, you know, um, take take time to do. Um, I and, can see why you didn't enjoy uh, government. If if, if you're yeah, to... <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and really that that um, naivety, I think I'll put it down to. So that there was there was not, you know, a huge amount of people knocking on on the door. There wasn't a huge amount of indie brewers knocking on the door. Um, as I said, it was it was a growing. Uh, area now it's 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 um, it's well cemented in terms of its visitor visitor appeal but at that time it was a it was a different world and I was a different person um, and so it was not not thought through to any degree to be very frank it was responding to oh yeah that sounds good you know happy to have a chat um, happy to take your money at that point and until you know, I had this conversation with, with one of our members the other day. Until until consumers demand that product, when you're on a tight margin, it's very difficult to supply it without the demand being there. 
Which is probably a nice segue to talking about your role at the IBA in, in, in that case. How do we create that demand? But looking at that, I think you were announced as joining the IBA, at, what, two or three weeks before suddenly everything, our world's changed? Oh, I think it was bang on, Matt. Um, the, my first day at the IBA was the 23rd of March. Okay. However... I was coming in, Pete, our chairman uh, from Wayward uh, Brewing Co. was down uh, in Melbourne. Um, we had scheduled the Indie Beer Showcase for the 21st, the 2021st, 22nd of um, March at Fed Square. So I was going in to, to meet Pete, catch up, have a bit of a handover given, you know, taking the opportunity of him being in, in Melbourne. Um, and then we were going to go into Federation Square to have a look and, and meet the crew and, and have a look at the showcase. And so I want to say the Wednesday or the Thursday just before that, um, obviously the world changed and um, and our restrictions here in Victoria were announced. So we had to cancel the Indie Beer Showcase a couple of days out. Um, Pete didn't fly down. Um, and so from my first day on that Monday, I was working from home. So I think I, I joked with you, you, you via an email at one point, I still haven't been in the office. <laughs> <laughs> Coming into it, it, it at that stage, how has the IBA, in the same way as many of your members have had to pivot, um, the IBA mm. has had to pivot. How has that been for you learning a business that is in the midst of a uh, fairly severe pivot itself? Yeah, absolutely. The The last eight weeks have been fascinating and interesting and um slightly manic to be very frank because <laughs> you know we we as an organization and my my you know I have a better understanding now obviously of where the organization has come from and is interested in 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 going to it's not the traditional start of a job where you might be able to sit down with all your team and have good chats about what's happening where they want to go uh, you know, an ability to kind of meet and, and have those higher level conversations with the board who were all, you know, pivoting like maniacs trying to work out what they were doing with their own businesses. Um, and so it, it's on one hand, it's been a very different start to a new role. On the other hand, it's been a really great way because I had to learn very quickly first week, you know, doing member surveys and talking to, you know, every politician and, and government bureaucrat we can to look at, at getting some support for, for the IBA and for our members, um, responding very, very quickly uh, to incentives that had come out in terms of whether or not they were a good fit for our organisation, but, but also at the same time, um, having, to, having to look at what was planned, what had been cancelled, um, what, what we were then having to do in terms of responding to the, the, the restrictions in place and, and how, do we benefit, how do we deliver both the best, I guess, benefit to our members during that time. So we've had to... Um, you know that that eight weeks, while while it's a lot of my time has been taken up with advocacy, we're all at the same time trying to plan Brucon, plan our, you know the Indies Awards, look at rescheduling Indie Beer Showcase, when's Indie Beer Day, what does Good Beer Week look like for 2021, working with our partners, our sponsors, 
um, trying to find a venue to reschedule BrewCon, you know, all of these things meant that um, it's actually been trial by fire for eight weeks, but um, it's probably a good way to do it fundamentally. (laughs) You talked about the advocacy and some of the work that's done because you've stepped right into that role. And advocacy is almost the iceberg of an organisation such as the IBA where you only ever see the tip of what's involved in that. Um, yeah. Maybe you can sort of tell us a little bit about the advocacy that has been going on in the background. Absolutely. That's a really good way to describe it too, um, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it, it's, you know, for an organisation like ours, um, advocacy is essentially a key part of our role. And and it's it's generally in any membership organisation, it's generally why, why business will pay their dues because they know that it, it's a challenge to achieve some of these big targets on their own. Um, and so the power the power of a shared voice, um, I think, in that respect is is why organisations such as ours exist. So um, the the our advocacy efforts you know, have been quite broad um, and has certainly had to broaden um, from what they were. However, from what I understand, um, it's really, you know, last 12 months or or so or a little more is really where the organisation has focused a lot of its efforts other other than the events is advocacy. So obviously there was some... um, you know, you can kind of look at it in two parts, I guess. There was there was the response to COVID, um, and and what our members were going through, uh, and then there were the things that I would call more a longer burn, which were equally as important at that time and and gave us a bit more leverage, um, but uh, maybe a little difficult, more difficult to achieve. And so some of those more immediate. Um, more immediate tasks were, you know, I, I can't tell you how many letters I've written to the treasurer and and how many ministers' offices I've spoken to from a state perspective, either to look at clarification of the restrictions that they've put in, uh, incentives and grants and and support for that each state has offered, because obviously that's different. So we've had to get in there and try and dissect some of that. We're working with a lot of the states to try and um, access some financial support for the IBA and and for our members that that are in that state. Uh, You know, we've been talking to the ATO about, which happened quite quickly actually, um, thankfully. They've been fantastic in in allowing the quick pivot um, and and easing of uh, licensing and restrictions so breweries can make sanitizer instead of beer. Um, You know, the, the, the... the immediate response was quite varied and, and anything that we got from a member, we tried to to deal with very, very quickly uh, just because every state was different. A lot of the, a lot of the restrictions were quite ambiguous. So, um, so a lot of it was, as I say, immediate response and it was jumping in wherever there was a need. We were surveying members, as you know, to try and understand what the situation was, what the true situation was in terms of the impact on their business. Um, and, you know, again, just getting into every government or, or political office that, that we could that might be willing to give us a hearing. It was interesting. I, I did pick up when you said that your members pay their membership dues for the advocacy. And may, maybe I'm a little bit too cynical, but mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of, and part of the metaphor with the iceberg was, uh, you know, I, I think members 
pay their dues for results from the advocacy and that's the tip of the iceberg, mm. but they don't see the vast amounts of work that go in. Um, how hard is it to communicate the work behind the results um, to, to, to justify the, uh, to the membership dues? Because I guess that's where the cost goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that, that's a really good point. And I think, uh, and I'm not sure if, um, I know you're, you you subscribe to our communication. So I think um, the way that we've tried to do that really is just to keep people up to date. And even the holding message that says we're still banging away at this, um, where we've got, you know, calls almost every day with, you know, Zoom is my new best friend um, in terms of being able to connect with, with some of these bureaucrats who, who you know, to give them credit, we're all in a complete spin themselves. You know, everybody has been in a complete spin, I think, whoever you, whoever you talk to. Um, so just telling our members what's happening uh, has been important and we're getting really good feedback about that. People are absolutely reading our communication, um, some within minutes of it going out, which is fantastic given how cluttered people's inboxes are and how, um, how distracted, I guess, you know, people were in trying to save their business, um, keep staff and all that sort of stuff. So I think um, as long as we tell people what's happening and, and our, our recent survey that we, so we issued a second survey a couple of weeks back and we asked them questions about our performance during this time, you know, which is always very brave, I think. Um, and people are really, majority of, of respondents, we got a good, really good sample survey, um, majority of people are saying they feel like their membership benefits have actually increased during this crisis. And that they're, you know, overall, um, you know, 75 or so percent are absolutely happy with what, what we've done in response to the crisis. So I think if you just keep talking to people about what you're doing and communicate as well as delivering on all those other things. So, you know, we're talking to them about increased consumer marketing. We're talking to them about rescheduling our events. We're running webinars that, that you know, um, hopefully have helped when it comes to property law, industrial relations law, all of those sorts of things. So we're still delivering demonstrable benefit, things they can see and touch and feel, all that new point of sale material, as well as keeping everyone up to date about those things that I, I, I essentially, I guess, would call a, a slow burn. <laughs> In terms of the government engagement, I guess it's a, it's a really difficult area because so much of the um, laws um, and regulations that brewers operate in uh, federal um, government, but then you've got mm. a, they, they also, particularly when they're starting to look at the brew pub uh, model, there's a whole lot of state um, you know, alcohol requirements, and then even when it comes to council planning, um, mm. and they're, they're so <laughs> different. And I guess, you know, on one hand, brewers are looking to the IBA to sort of help them navigate, you know, all sorts of government red tape, um, and yet. It's in an incredibly fractured landscape. How, how does the IBA, you know, what role does the IBA see in that? Um, is it a national, you know, lobbying group or is or does it become a little bit more granular? I think we, particularly during the crisis or during this pandemic, we've had to be a jack of all trades. Um, and my background, I guess, has meant that we've been able to provide some assistance that, we may not have before and and by that I mean um, there's there was a lot of issue around and again as as you say the the, the states and local councils all operate differently so there was 
um, there was a lot of confusion uh, and, and some real challenges around how the states were implementing the closures, what was able to keep, you know, keep operating and what wasn't, and particularly around the you know, definition of a cellar door and whether or not tap rooms fit into that, take away, you know, things like that. So um, a, a lot of, a lot of you know, what we were responding to was clarifying some of that and helping members access other agencies or more detailed information. And given I worked for councils and was heavily involved in, in town planning, I had, that, I had that knowledge so I was able to help. Um, we've had, you know, people come to us saying that they wanted to apply for a government grant and needed uh, some data or some stats or some help with the application because, you know, you just be, you know, you, you can, you might be able to run a business and be a fantastic brewer, but doesn't mean you can respond to a government funding application because they can sometimes be a little tough. Um, so I've done, you know, we, we've helped in that respect. Um, individual breweries being, you know, successful in applying and receiving funding. And and there's a range of, you know, as I said, the, the sanitizer issue was big for a while. We've looked, we're, we're still, we have worked um, with distribution companies on getting better rates for our members. And they're still another one of those slow burns I mentioned is still working with Australia Post to be able to achieve some better rates again for our members so it really was a variety and and we've um, you know the crew that work for the IBA are so dedicated and so passionate about what they do that we just really pull out any stops we can to be able to help somebody and if we can't help somebody we try and find somebody who can Stepping outside of the, the governance and the uh, you know, political lobbying issue, I, I guess the IBA has increasingly become, um, you know, a, a flag waver for the notions of independence, particularly since the change from the Craft Beer Industry Association to the Independent Brewers Association. Um, mm. And over that time, it's also taken on the Good Beer Week crew. So as as much as it's a lobbying body, it seems to be, um, you know, a, a consumer engagement and events organization as well yeah um you know not not having the not having there during that time of merging and and morphing into something different i've obviously only got you know people's views on on how that went why that happened and and you know the decision making process of of saying we're here and we want to be there um i think uh it's you know, if you if you could map it or put it on bell curve, it's it's a, it would be a fascinating evolution to to look at. And and every day we evolve um, a little more when it comes to the level of sophistication of financial reporting or or advocacy, as we've spoken about. Um, so my understanding is, you know, we we used to be an organisation that ran events and did a little bit of promotion and. Um, Given the growth, the rapid growth of the industry, that often dictates the need for uh, a broader, more sophisticated organisation to be at the helm. So I think the desire of the people that involve, that have been involved to 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 continue and to grow and to evolve, as well as responding to climatic change, and I don't mean the environment, I mean change in the industry, as well as the rapid growth, has meant that it's had to evolve, as well as has a desire to evolve. So I think that um, that trajectory has been fascinating and, and will continue. You know, you and I will have a conversation in six months and, and we'll have a, you know, 
be talking about what we're doing now versus what we were doing six months ago because there's been a demand or a need um, or we've been able to get some additional grant funding to do something that we haven't done before. Um, and so I think that that's, that's really a sign of a healthy healthy industry and a healthy organisation is one that grows and adapts to what its, its constituents or its stakeholders need. So, what are the what what are the current um, goals for the for the IBA? What you know what what are the key um, areas of advocacy and also um, you know awareness around independence? Yeah, so um, we we've been since certainly since I've come on board, we've um, we've decided that you know our focus uh, right now. Um, I think I mentioned to you early on that the that the team has sort of reduced reduced our hours to be able to ensure that. You know we're sustainable for a longer period of time. We can get through this crisis. We can keep on, you know, keep on some of our staff. And so, with that, we needed to be really focused on what we did and didn't do. Um, and so, what we uh, have committed to and certainly communicated is that um, advocacy is obviously our priority at the minute. And I can talk a little bit more detail about those priorities. But um, consumer marketing, you know, that the organisation was just about to. Uh, launch a, a more significant uh, campaign or efforts at promoting the seal, the independent brewer seal, um, and which is, you know, other than the events, really, it's kind of first foray into real consumer direct marketing or communication or, or raising of awareness. Um, and so marketing is something that we've really ramped up. I've, I'm writing, you know, briefs today for digital um, advertising and, and PR contracts um, and uh, our events and, and our support for members, so business support, and that means tools, marketing tools, business planning tools, financial tools, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, access to skilled expertise that might have helped them through that crisis. Um, and and that one-on-one support. So really, those are re- our kind of key result areas at the minute. Getting our events rescheduled as well is is a priority, and and that's going great guns now. We've confirmed those dates. Um, is is what the team and I are, are really focused on, and um, ensuring that uh, we're telling members along the way what's happening. And and that response has been fantastic. As I said, the the new point of sale material has been has been taken up. Uh, and I'm, I'm already seeing bottle shops, so that's a really exciting, really exciting outcome for a really quick piece of work. You were talking about the um, point of sale material, and that, that's obviously around the independence uh, seal and buying mm. independent. Yeah, it's it's so that the launch to the seal um, and and access to the seal uh, was obviously predated time with the IBA, and and it was planning for a campaign. Um, to to have that that logo out um, on display uh, at, with trade as well as on um, packaging and product of our members, so it was really expanding and and starting to um, starting to make a more concerted effort at having consumers understand what that what that logo and what that um, what that branding meant for for what they were getting essentially, and so. That that was essentially put on hold while we pivoted and, and partnered with Crafty Pint and we jumped on board their Keeping Local Alive campaign in response to the restrictions and and the crisis. That was sort of 
couple of weeks, the week maybe or the week before I started. Um, and so we, we, we put all of our efforts behind that um, because it was getting some good traction and it was working together with the industry. And it, it essentially promoted uh, the seal, keep, you know, ask for indie beer as well as the keeping local alive hashtag. So we did some shared branding. And that's what the point of sale material was based on was, um, you know, while people were um, still allowed to go to bottle shops, people were drinking more at home rather than out. It was a good way of trying to help and support our members and have, you know, Aussies hopefully be able to say, okay, I'm going to buy independent and support my mate at this point um, rather than what they normally may have purchased from a bottle shop. So, it was it was directly in response to that crisis that we uh, changed what we were doing. Now we're we're kind of coming, I guess, to a different phase of where we're at with restrictions. With people are able to open again, although limited in numbers, we're going back to the the campaign and building that long long term campaign of raising awareness of the seal, that logo, its branding, and what it means for. Um, for a consumer when they either see it in a bottle shop or see it on a tap or, or um, in a fridge. So that's, that's our you know, focus on consumer marketing, certainly, as I've been for the rest of the year. It, it, it's an interesting one because I guess the Independence logo fights for a slice of the beer pie, um, you know, trying to convince uh, beer purchasers to enter that part of the market um, and and purchase there, mm. but the, the the beer category itself is, according to all of the data, seeing a lot of challenges. Is there a role for the IBA in, you know, uh, making the beer category more attractive, or is it really just sort of looking at making sure that um, craft beer, um, you know, when craft beer buyers look at independence? I think you know I won't I won't profess to understand. Um, the complete beer bubble at the minute. You know, every day is, is a learning day for me in, in that I understand more and more of the detail and and the um, machinations, I guess, behind uh, indie, indie beer versus, versus mm. others. Um, but I think our, our focus at the minute is, um, is, is distribution of that yep. seal, having as many members as possible using it on their product and packaging and in their venues. So it becomes more of a known thing regardless of whether or not you're going into that venue or into that bottle shop to, to actively purchase independent beer or others. I think we're, you know, um, we're, we're looking at, we're looking also beyond the food, the, the beer bubble to, to, you know, what might be, colloquially known as, as foodies, lovers of food, lovers of local, people that want to understand the ingredients, people that really want to have more of an experience associated with their beer, um, with their with, with drinking beer, um, rather than just it's, it's on, on, you know, I'm having a beer. Um, and so I think uh, a lot of what we are aiming to do, and certainly what I'm aiming to do, is to attract some different markets, to get into some different media, to try and start um, what is a very, very long-term um, approach to saying, oh, okay, I recognise what that is now. And if you are then after either supporting local, after a different taste, a different experience, you're looking to, um, you know, have, have artisan um artisan products that you either eat or drink 
that you'll you'll be aware of what that means and how to get it because fundamentally, you know, the research that I did before I applied for this job, I've got I've got you know a huge amount of friends who are profess to be independent beer experts. So I asked them lots of questions about how that works, and they even had kind of no idea of the seal. So I think um, we've got a job to do in in what it means. This is what it is, and this is where you can get it. You probably haven't, in all of your reading and research, haven't had a chance to catch up on it, but Pete Brown at last year's BrewCon gave a really interesting keynote looking at the difference between craft and independence and, you know, why craft matters, but then it also doesn't. I, I, I guess that was leading into a question about the, the whole notion of independence because, uh, you know, for the 15 years before independence became the thing, there were all of these discussions about what craft meant and people trying to define it and whether big brewers could be craft and independence sort of separates that yeah. out a little bit but there's still a lot of people who are troubled by you know however we define something like independence um do, does that get in the way of the message or you know should we should we worry about what independence means or just say well here's the definition and this is what we're going to market do you know i think it, it's and again there's still so much learning for me to do in this this space and but i i you know, I, I said to you earlier that I was a, um, I was have always been a big fan of what I call craft beer, um, and it, and and there for me there was a lack of understanding or perception of what was owned by the guys and looked like craft beer versus what was produced and sitting in in a bottle shop or or in a pub next. You know that you know might be a small family-owned business that's got a tap room in a country town. You know, I, I didn't know the difference. You know, I knew some of the thing, some of I guess the product that was owned owned by the biggies that looked like craft beer, but you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think, um, you know, in to compare it to something that I do know very well, the tourism industry, you know, would would talk for for hours and meetings ad nauseum and advocating to government and trying to make change for something that didn't actually mean anything to the consumer. And it was all industry stuff. So I think what I'm trying to say is I think a consumer thinks more simply about these things than we do. They know what they want, what they like, what they want to try. They they want to, you know, they want braggability rights of being able to say to their, take photos of labels and post them on Insta going, I've had this new beer. Um, they want to, they want to be more educated about what goes into what they're eating and drinking, as I said before. So I think if we take all of the history, all of the what I might call politics out of it, talking to the consumer is fundamentally quite easy because they're not marred in, in or, or um, they're not uh, embroiled in all of the political game that goes behind it. I think there might certainly be consumers that care or, or have a desire to support um, a brewery because it's independent, because the money stays in Australia, and for all of those other reasons that they, you know, they're their mates at the footy club or whatever it might be. But but fundamentally, I think pretty simply about it, and so that means then for me that's easy to to talk to them and say this is what, and and from my own perspective, our our own selfish perspective is this is what indie beer is. This is what it means, uh, and this is, as I said, this is where you can get it. So, one side of my, my job and my mind is playing in the politics. The other is, I think, 
I feel it's it's a simple message. Uh, well, I, I guess, and I'm very conscious of the time that I've taken, and uh, hopefully we'll get to. Uh, pick up and uh, do more than just this introductory uh, chat with you and uh, uh, down the track. But, uh, Any time, uh, but But it's interesting that you said it's a simple message. So I guess what, 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 if I can finish, um, I'll ask you, what would mm. IBA uh, General Manager Kylie pitch to pub-owning, uh, I think your word was naive, Kylie, um, what simple message would you pitch to to get her to put on, as a pub owner, um, independent beer? You know, I've learned a whole lot more and there's some amazing people in this industry that have absolutely been so generous in giving me their time to explain and understand the position from their perspective, whether it be a large independent or a really small independent. This is a one thing that's amazed me is um, is how is how tight knit everybody is and how amazing um, they are at, at giving time and wanting to contribute not just for their own uh, own business but certainly the success of the industry as a whole. So uh, some of the things that I think um, are important to 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 understand or to talk about or to uh, illustrate when we talk about either tap contracts or um, distribution of product through venues that, that aren't um, brew pubs is to mount, to build and mount a case that makes us competitive. And I think that that's, again, that's, you know, I talked earlier about the fact that doing that on an individual basis can sometimes be challenging. And so an association like ours, I think, has a job to do in, in being able to say, um, this is actually what it looks like over a five-year term or a three-year term. Or if you allow us some extra tap space, this is your return on investment um, because there's there's maybe a perception that it's an easier way to go this way rather than that way. So I think we've got some work there to do in, um, and it's it's a it's almost a, a run alongside each other race is is working with consumers so they go into venues and ask for independent beer. Um, which then gives the venue owners, managers, a, a good justification to go, okay, I really need to consider that, uh, while at the same time working with the industry to say um, we, we really need some more tap space because our industry is growing, because we have the product that's competitive and because we have a good quality product as well. That's as good a place as any to leave this conversation. So <laughs> Kylie Lethbridge, welcome to uh, the IBA, welcome to the industry and uh Thank you very much for this conversation. Thanks, Matt. I really look forward to, um, you know, one day actually being able to meet people, go and, <laughs> you know, stand in their tap rooms. That's the, most, that's the most exciting thing for me on the horizon and for working, with, you know, with your, uh, with your excellent publication. So thanks for having me. Pleasure. And hopefully next time we'll get to have a, a, a beer in the bar, uh, actually have a chat with a beer. I'd love to. <laughs> And that was Independent Brewers Association General Manager Kylie Lethbridge. I'm sure you'll agree it was a great chat, and I look forward to speaking to Kylie again once she's well settled in that role. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryomalt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt are dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. Your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of Beer as a Conversation. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. 
You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. 